The scripture reading for this morning is from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 13 through 16. Hear the word of our Lord. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is, has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him honor and eternal dominion. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Seated. You know, it's, uh, it's always a blessing to be here and to sing together. Um, I think this morning was a particular blessing for me. You guys know uh, Colossians 3.16. It says, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. And then what does it say? Teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart to the Lord. This morning, you know, part of what we do when we sing, we are offering up praise unto the Lord. That is definitely part of our singing, but we are also teaching and admonishing one another in our singing. And, uh, <laughs> This morning, I had old Brian Utech behind me, and uh, when we sang out holy, Isaiah 6 was coming to mind, and the angels before the throne of God crying out, holy, holy, holy. <laughs> Brian's going, cry out, sing holy, and it's like, yes. Yeah, that's exactly what it's going to be one day, and we're all going to cry out. We're going to sing holy together with a new strength, and I can't wait. So praise the Lord for that, that blessing this morning. Yeah, I just can I say something else on that? I really, really love it when everybody just sings out and doesn't worry about what their voice sounds like. You're not worried about what everyone else thinks. You're just offering up praise to the one who is worthy. So let's keep belting it out. Such a blessing. As we start, let's, uh, let's pray. Pray together. Father, thank you for this wonderful time that we've had so far in, in worship and praising you. And, uh, Lord, we know that that worship is not limited to our songs. That worship is a limit or is, extends to everything that we do here this morning in our assembling together, our corporate gathering. Lord, whether we're praying or whether we're giving of tithes and offerings or whether we're singing or preaching or hearing your word preached, Lord, everything that we do, even in our interactions with one another here this morning, is to be an act of worship offered up unto you. And so, Father, I, I pray that your name would be hallowed this morning. 
I pray that our hearts would sense in newer ways and our minds would grasp in higher heights the sanctity and the holiness of your name. And Father, that that would impel us, that would compel us to offer ourselves back to you in praise and worship. Lord, please be among us this morning in your grace and power. We know you are here according to your promise. Please open our eyes and enlighten the eyes of our hearts to see, to know your nearness more fully today. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' mighty, matchless, and glorious name. Amen. Well, the title of the message today is Pro-Reggae. Pro-Reggae. Anybody ever heard that phrase before? It's my, it's my favorite phrase, I think, in this season of my life. Pro-Reggae. I close my emails with this phrase. And uh, until the day, Pro-Reggae. Some of you know what it means because you can read Latin. I'm looking at a, a particular family back there. Some of you know what it means because you've asked me about it in the past. You've wondered, what does that phrase mean? Well, simply put, uh, pro-reggae means for the king. You could also translate that as on behalf of the king. But really, it has to do with living unto Jesus and on behalf and in light of Jesus. I found this in the writings of a man named Cornelius Van Til. I don't know if he coined that on his own or if he picked it up from somewhere else, but uh, Van Til was a Christian philosopher and a theologian pretty much throughout the 1900s. He died like March 12th or something of 1987, so just before I was born, a couple months. and. Uh, Yes, I turned 34 on Friday, so thank you to everyone who congratulated me on growing up. <laughs> Van Til was a Christian philosopher pretty much throughout the 1900s, a Christian theologian. And pro-reggae was his two-word summary of the entire Christian life. He wrote this, and this is the phrase that I, this is where I found this, this phrase in his writings. He wrote, all of my life, my life in my family, my life in my church, my life in my society, my life in my vocation, is all unified under the banner pro-reggae for the king. Every believer who hears that, you know the burning sensation in your heart of that call to live for the glory of the king. That's what Van Til was seeking to capture there. In fact, if you asked Van Til, please define for us the entirety of the Christian life. What is it really? What does it mean to be a Christian and to live faithfully as a Christian? Van Til would define it simply as this. Christianity is 
total submission to Christ as king. Total submission to Christ as king. Now, in light of the phrase I just read, we know that Van Til, for him, this wasn't just an empty mantra. This, this wasn't a fake banner he's waving over his life. This was a true conviction of his heart, a true, something that had really gripped his mind and to such a degree that it infected the way that he lived his life. It, it, its roots grew down deep and caused him not only to proclaim Christ as king, but also to live for Christ as his king. Now, none of us do this perfectly. None of us live pro reggae perfectly. And we won't live this out perfectly until Christ completes the work of salvation in our lives at his second coming. It's not until we're glorified that we will actually be able to live fully for the king. But until that day comes, the goal that we are striving after is to have a life characterized by this phrase to live a life that is for the king. That is the kind of life that Timothy is being called to live here in 1 Timothy 6. We've been seeing that. He was being called to live a life for the glory of King Jesus, both in his personal life and then also in his life of ministry. He was to keep the commandment entrusted to him without stain or reproach, until our Lord, our King, Jesus Christ, appears. Which we saw last week would come at the proper time when the Father wills for the Son to come in His glory. Now what we find today in our text as we're moving into verses 15 and 16 is that this focus on living for the glory of the King was also the heartbeat of the Apostle Paul. 1 Timothy 6, verses 15 and 16 is what is called a doxology, where Paul is worshiping God in light of some particular aspect of God's character. Immediately after referring to the appearing of Christ, Paul gets caught up in worship of God in light of what would be ultimately revealed about God on the day of Christ's coming. And in particular, what it's focusing on here is the glory of God as king over all. A glory that will fully and finally be revealed on the day in which Christ appears. In fact, it is this truth about God that guarantees for Paul that the coming of Christ will actually happen. You see how he writes this. He says, God the Father will bring about the appearing of Christ in his own time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. This doxology that Paul is offering up here at the end of this letter is really the ground and the basis for Paul's confidence that the coming of Christ will actually happen and that God will bring the coming of Christ about in the proper time. What we find Paul doing here is glorying in the fact that God is the eternal king who is marching forward in this world 
to accomplish his will in time, which will reach its climax on the day of Christ's appearing. Amen? Now, I think what's important for us to note about this before we start digging into the doxology is that by what Paul writes here, we see very clearly that Paul did not only proclaim the truth of God's kingship to others. Paul really believed it. He gloried in it. He worshiped God. He praised God in light of God's kingship. Now, I know that everyone wants to hear about the practical ins and outs of Christianity. Tell me what to do and I will do it. Help me understand how to actually put my feet on the ground and start walking. Well, let me lay this before you. There is nothing more practical for living the Christian life than what we find Paul doing right here in 1 Timothy chapter 6. In fact, I will say to you that if you in your own heart cannot sit and do what Paul is doing here in these verses, then it doesn't matter what practical instruction I give you. You will never be able to live a life that is pro-reggae. Because it will never be coming forth out of the right motivation. You will never have a heart that actually impels you to live for Christ the King. If you don't have a heart that is praising Christ as King the way that Paul is doing here. If in our hearts we do not glory in God as King the way that Paul is glorying in God as King in these verses, then we will never find the drive or the motivation or the determination to make the sacrifices that will be required of us to live a life that is truly for the glory of Jesus Christ, our King. So, we're going to dig into this doxology of Paul, and I want us to keep that in mind. And as we see in each one of our hearts a lacking in this sense of glory that we see in the Apostle Paul, let's be praying and repenting and asking the Spirit of God to quicken our hearts anew with the grace of Christ. We're going to look at Paul's doxology here in these verses under four headings. Today we're only going to get to one. That was a last-minute decision. but I just couldn't keep going through all of it. So the one that we're going to look at today is the first thing we notice here is that Paul worships God as the sovereign king. Paul worships God, he glories in God, he praises God, he magnifies God, he exalts God as the sovereign king. And there are three angles on God's sovereignty that Paul focuses on here in verse 15. The first one that we see is that Paul worships God as the blessed sovereign. God... Paul worships God as the blessed sovereign. Now, this is one of the strongest encouragements that can settle in on a believer's heart and mind. The reality that God is a blessed God. The word blessed simply means happy, if you didn't know that. It means happy or content or fulfilled. And this statement here is not a statement about what God is becoming, 
God is not becoming the blessed God. This is a statement about what God is by nature in himself. God is the blessed God. That means that God by nature is a happy God. And conversely, that means that there is never a time when God is unhappy. He's never frustrated. He's never anxious. He's never discontent. He's never worried about the way things are going in the world. His throne is never shaking or trembling because of the empty threatenings of a hostile and ungodly people. He is completely satisfied and always at peace and filled with eternal and perfect joy. He is the blessed God. Now that is not to say that God is never displeased with how things play out here in this world. God is not indifferent about our sorrow or our pain. He's not unconcerned about it. Isaiah 63 verse 9, for example, says that in all the afflictions of his people, God himself is afflicted. You see in 2 Thessalonians 1.7 that when Christ comes, he is coming to give relief to his afflicted people. He is not unconcerned about the troubles and the trials that we will face in this world as his creatures. Nor is he unconcerned with the evil that takes place in this world. He's not so removed from us that he no longer cares about what we're doing. Psalm 711 says that God cares so deeply about what is happening in his world that he has righteous indignation every single day. Every day God looks out upon the world of humanity and is filled with indignation. You know what that means? That means that he cares about what is going on in this world. I'll never forget the first time I saw that in connection with the flood. When God was grieved over the wickedness of man and sent the flood upon the world to destroy mankind, you know what that tells us about God? It tells us that he knows very intimately what is going on in the world and he cares very much about it. Very comforting to the heart of the believer. God cares deeply about the things that happen in this world, but here's what we need to keep in mind. As the blessed God, his joy or satisfaction is never altered or dampened or dependent upon anything that takes place in this world. And the reason for that is simple. God's happiness and joy and satisfaction is not resting on anything in this world. Rather, his joy and his happiness And his satisfaction is resting entirely on himself. You see this most clearly in Matthew 3.17, where we get this glimpse of these eternal relations going on within the persons of the Trinity. When the Son comes to do the Father's will, the Father's response is to speak from heaven and declare over his Son, you are my beloved Son, and in you I am well pleased. There we see exactly what the object of the Father's eternal pleasure is. It's it's the Son, the one who is the image of the invisible God, the radiance of His glory, the exact imprint of His nature. 
God is fully satisfied in who He is, and that satisfaction manifests most clearly in the relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit. This is why, just as a side note, I don't have this in the slides, but please write this down. This is why God can swear to us in Jeremiah 32, 40, that He will not turn away from His people in the new covenant to do them good. That God will never turn His back on His people who are in covenant with Him in this everlasting covenant. We know sealed in Jesus Christ, God will never turn His back on them and will never cease to do them good. He even says in verse 41, Jeremiah 32, I will rejoice over them to do them good. Now how can God say that He will rejoice over us to do us good? You've never done anything that caused God to rejoice over you. I have never done anything that would cause God to look upon me and be filled with delight, to be filled with joy. I don't even do many things that give me joy. Some of you can say amen to that because you know your own depravity so well. You know how sinful you are. How can God look upon us and say, I am so, I'm so committed to your good that I swear to you, I will never turn away from doing you good. In fact, I will rejoice in doing you good. Well, the answer to that is simple. God can swear that to us because God is in himself the blessed God. And as the blessed God, He has everything that He needs to satisfy Him in order to make Him willing to do good to sinners like you and me. Yeah, praise God. Praise God. Now, if you think about that, the blessed nature of God in contrast or in relation to the rulers and the kings of the world we see a vast difference between the two right here on this point. This is vastly different from the kings and the rulers who reign over us in this world. Their, uh, their blessedness is not an inherent blessedness. It's not a satisfaction in themselves. In fact, it is a satisfaction that is siphoned from what they can get from the people who are under them. Right? That's the essence of tyranny. And that's why in a fallen world, tyranny will always raise its ugly head. You will always have tyrannical rulers rising up to take advantage of those who are under their authority. Because they are not blessed in themselves, they are in fact blessed only by what they can pull out of those who are under them. Completely contrary to that, God is the blessed God because he is completely satisfied in himself, and therefore he is the perfect, sovereign, blessed king. Now just in passing application, I, I need to move through this a little bit, but this gives us great comfort and assurance as we seek to live our lives in service to this king, this sovereign God. We do not serve a God whose joy or happiness or satisfaction is determined by what we can do or will do for Him. 
God is completely satisfied in himself apart from us, and therefore his happiness, here's the good news, is not dependent on us. King Jesus, in other words, does not need your obedience in order to make him happy. Nor does he need anything that the world of humanity has to offer in order to accomplish his sovereign will. He will do it because he is the blessed king. Now for you, believer, you need to know this and you need to rest in this truth. Because this means that if God is not dependent upon you to be happy, that means that God is not dependent upon your failures or your shortcomings or your successions or your succeedings, I guess. What would that be? Successes. There we go. God is not dependent upon your successes or your failures in order to be happy and to be willing to do you good. God is always the happy king, and he's always the happy king that is reigning over us, and he is always ready because of his own blessedness to move forth and do good to those who come to him. Now, so that's the first thing we see Paul glorying in here as he exalts in God as the only sovereign. He is the blessed sovereign. Now, secondly, we see Paul not only praising God as the blessed sovereign, but also as the only sovereign. Look with me in 1 Timothy 6.15, where Paul says, He who is the blessed and only sovereign. Now, the word sovereign is a little stronger than the word king. Sovereign in Greek, comes from a a group of words that have the basic meaning of power. God is the only sovereign over this world because he is the only one who has the power to be sovereign. As a creator of all things, God not only has the power to do what he wants, we could add to this, he is also the only one who has the sovereign prerogative to do whatever he wants. As Martin Luther said, God is the prince of power. He's not merely a powerful prince. You know the difference there. He's not just one among many princes. He is the prince of all power. And therefore, the only sovereign. Now that means there's nothing that can disrupt what God is going to do in his creation. There is no one that can stay his hand. There is no one who can judge what he's doing. There is no one who can withstand his workings. God is the only sovereign, and the only sovereign will accomplish his sovereign pleasure, which will reach its fullness on the coming and the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 103, verse 19, it says that the Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and what? And his sovereignty rules over all. Now, that sovereignty ruling over all that moves God to orchestrate all things to accomplish his will, that even includes those who are trying to withstand God in his sovereignty. As I thought through that, I thought of, I remembered Jesus before Pilate, John 19, verse 11. 
When Pilate presumed to believe that he had the authority over Jesus, either to crucify him or to set him free, he in fact looks at Jesus and he says, don't you know that I have the power to crucify you and I have the power to set you free? Will you not answer me? And Jesus said in response to them, to him, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from heaven. See, even Pilate, in his fear of man and his indecisiveness and his inability to do what was right, his unwillingness to do what was right, even over all his sins and failures, Jesus looks at Pilate and says, everything you are doing, you are doing by the leave of the God in heaven who has given you authority to do it. You have no authority in yourself. Even you are dependent upon the God who reigns over all creation. So God reigns as absolute monarch over all creation. He's unrivaled, he's unchallenged, and he's undeterred. And that is the second reason for which Paul praises him as the sovereign God here in 1 Timothy 6.15. Now we come to our third point, which will be a little bit longer. Or thirdly, Paul not only praises God as the blessed God, as the only sovereign, but he states it even more emphatically at the close of this verse when he praises God as the one who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. God is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and Paul praises him in light of such a truth. Now, I want you to pay attention to what this verse is saying. I always want you to pay attention. I really want you to pay attention right now. Paul is praising God's sovereignty not merely as a theoretical idea of God and his ability to control everything. This isn't some esoteric unknowable, unattainable, unreachable, untangible thing that Paul is praising God about whenever he praises God for his sovereignty. Paul is homing in his praise of God's sovereignty, particularly to focus upon God's sovereign jurisdiction over all human existence. This is really important. There is no realm or area in human existence where the sovereign hand of God is absent or where the sovereign scepter of God does not extend. Specifically, there is no king, there is no lord, there is no part of any kingdom in this world that somehow operates outside of God's rule and reign. Do you believe that? We'll see. We're going to test that in just a minute. In fact, if there is any theme that runs through the book of Daniel, this is that theme. You know, from Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, 
There's praise unto God. Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever. For wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and epochs. He removes kings and he establishes kings. Now, who's that talking about? Is that talking about the Israeli kings? Is that talking about the kings of Judah? Well, you could say, well, it includes that for sure. Yes, it does. But Daniel's talking with Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Gentile king, a ruler outside of the kingdom of Israel, in other words. And yet there's this declaration of this truth that God is the one who removes kings and God is the one who establishes kings. Now, we all acknowledge this in a general sense. We acknowledge that God is the one who is reigning supremely over all authority on this earth. But I want you to think about the specifics of what this means. 1 Timothy 6.15 acknowledges that in the world there are many kings and there are a multitude of lords. But reigning supremely over each and every one of them is the one who is king of kings and lord of lords. Now, if that means anything, it most definitely means this. That every political ruler in this world exists under God's authority and is directly accountable to him. Amen? You still amening? Now, I thought the language here in Greek was absolutely stunning. The way that this is worded in the original language brought me to tears. It's so wonderful. It says, he is king over those who are kinging. And he is lord over those who are lording. Isn't that wonderful? The world is filled with rulers who are kinging. They're playing the game. They're exercising dominion in the realm of humanity to be king. The world is filled with lords who are lording over others. And yet here Paul says God is the one who is king over them all. Despite what they think or what they believe about themselves or their own importance, here's the key. They are not ultimate. God is. There is a greater authority that stands over all of the kings and all of the rulers in this world. An authority to whom they are all accountable. Not just on the day of judgment either. And this is where Christians fall short to connect the truth of God to reality. It is not only on the day of judgment that the kings and the rulers of this world are held accountable to God. They are held accountable to Him now, in time, in space, in the exercise of their dominion. They are directly accountable to the God who is sovereign over them. Now realize this. The moment that the Bible makes a statement like that, it thrusts God into the realm of politics. 
Agree? Are we still agreeing? Some of you are like, I'm not sure. I don't know where you're going. So far, we're in agreement, right? In other words, when you make a statement like, God is king, Jesus is king, Jesus reigns on the throne in heaven over all the worlds, or if you go with Peter, in 1 Peter, I believe it's 3, after God subjected all rule and authority to the Son, Jesus ascended and took his seat at the right hand of the Father. That means Jesus isn't waiting for the authorities of the kings and the rulers of this world to be subjected to him. He has already had them subjected to him, and then he took his seat on the throne in heaven. Say that with Peter. The moment that we make that kind of statement, unless I digress again, I'm sorry, digress. The moment that we make that kind of statement, we are making a political statement. Now, so many people want to keep Christianity and politics separate. The Bible will not allow that. The Bible will not allow that. Now, we have to be very careful in how we understand the relationship between the two. But they can never be divorced from each other. The moment that you declare God is king... As I've said, you are making a political statement. You are bringing what the world would consider to be a religious idea, and you are declaring its viability and its usefulness and its application in the civil realm. Now, this is important for believers to keep in mind and to understand as those who want to be faithful in our allegiance to God as king. If we are going to live lives in this world that are truly faithful to the king, we have to understand that there is no realm where Christ's kingship is not to be asserted. The Bible unashamedly and unapologetically claims that the national political affairs of every people group and every society on earth belong to the domain and the jurisdiction of God Almighty. Let me read that again, just in case you didn't get it. I saw some yawns there. It's okay, get that oxygen to the brain so you can keep, keep paying attention. It's good. The Bible unashamedly and unapologetically claims that national politics, the national politics of every people group and every society on earth, belong to the domain and the jurisdiction of God Almighty. Now, I, I cannot stress this enough. I know I'm, I feel like I'm walking kind of like, one half step, and I'm taking a step back. I cannot stress enough how important this is for us to grasp if we are going to be faithful servants of God in this world. Especially in a society like ours that has adopted an unbiblical and unhistorical understanding of the separation of church and state. Separation of church and state has been misunderstood and twisted 
into a concept that ought to be labeled the separation of God and state. And that is not only unbiblical, nor is it not in line with what the founders of this country intended, nor did that understanding arise out of the worldview that gave rise to our system of government and led to the establishment of a country that has been so blessed by God. Do you know where all that came from? All of that came from a recognition that God is king and a consistent application of what that means to the political affairs of a nation. That's what gave birth to our Constitution. That's what gave rise to the Bill of Rights. You understand that? It came from a Christian worldview. And the worldview that is now operating within our country is no longer a worldview that can sustain the claims that were put in place in our Constitution with our founding. They may try to step outside of God's authority and God's reign and His sovereign rule, but mankind can never actually escape His sovereign rule because we live in God's world. And God is King. Now the shock of such statements in our own day when we declare that God is sovereign even over political affairs in this country, that shock of those statements is not, the shock does not come from having an understanding of God's sovereignty over the rulers and kings of this world that is somehow operating in the background. Right? A lot of Christians will say, yeah, God is sovereign over kings and authorities in the world, but it's, it's, it's hidden. It's underneath the surface. He's working through them and among them in spite of them, and they don't really recognize that, nor should they. Well, let me, let me affirm, that is true. You read the prophets, God is working through the most ungodly of kings to bring about His will and His purpose. And they don't recognize it. Go read Isaiah chapter 10. The king of Assyria, he is the, the, the axe in God's hand. God is wielding Assyria for His own purposes. But, verse 13 says, I believe, or verse 10, Assyria didn't recognize that. Assyria said, my own power and my might has accomplished this. And God looks at Assyria and says, you fool. I'm the one using you to accomplish my ends. So I want to acknowledge, yes, God is operating and working in the hidden areas of political government in our world. But the shock of statements like what we find here in 1 Timothy 6.15 is that the Bible doesn't leave it there. God's sovereign kingship over kings and lords comes with a real, tangible expectation upon those who are kings and lords in this world. You agree with that? I was fewer than before. I want you to think about this and think of it in light of what God himself says in his word. This is not me, what I'm saying. This is not some political bent that I'm on up here and now I'm going to pull a fast one and all of a sudden we're post-millennialist. I'm not a post-millennial. I don't believe that the kingdom is going to be ushered in through the advancement of the church and preaching the gospel through the world. I don't believe that the kingdoms and the nations of this world are going to be Christianized and then Jesus is going to come. I don't believe that. However... 
I cannot deny the clear and outright statements that God makes in His Word, nor can I deny their implications for those who are rulers and governors over me and how that impacts my relation to them. Just let me give you an example. You remember, this is probably the clearest example any of us could turn to. You remember what God says to kings and rulers in Psalm 2, right? Psalm chapter 2. The kings of the earth, verse 2, take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. And what are they saying? Let us tear their fetters apart and let us cast away their cords from us. Now, these aren't just people in the world. These aren't just people groups. These are kings. These are rulers in the world. And what are they saying? Let's burst the bonds apart of God and His anointed, and let's cast the fetters of their control off of us. Let's rid ourselves of them. Now, that was operating. That has been operating since the moment that that psalm was written, and long before then, it was operating when they crucified the Lord of glory on the cross, and it is operating now globally to an extent that the world has never known. The kings and the rulers of the world right now are united in their secularistic, materialistic worldview in a way that has never been true at any other time in human history. So these rulers stand and they take counsel together. They're united together in their opposition to God. Sounds like Revelation, doesn't it? They're saying, let us tear their fetters apart and let us cast away their cords from us. Now let me ask you, how does God respond to the refusal of these kings to bow in submission to His Lordship? Is He fretting? Is He wringing His hands saying, oh man, guys, I wish you would just submit to me. Why won't you submit to me? I can't do anything until you submit to me. It's not what God is saying. Look at verse 4. It says that God sits in the heavens and laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. The king who reigns on high, whose rule and dominion governs all the nations of the world, simply mocks the foolishness of these kings in their papier-mâché crowns sitting on two-by-four thrones. God is not threatened by them. God is amused by them. He simply laughs at them and He mocks them in all of their feeble efforts to overthrow the Lord, their sovereign Creator, and the King whom that Lord has set over the entire universe. Notice verse 5. Right now, God is mocking. God is laughing at the world. But look at verse 5. The day is going to come when all the laughing and the mocking will be done. The day is going to come where God is no longer deriding them for their foolishness. The time of His patience will run out. And then it says, He will speak to them in His anger and He will terrify them in His fury. 
The day is coming when all the laughing will stop and the games will be over and the arrogance of the kings and the rulers of this world will dissolve in utter terror before the king of glory. Now what's going to cause them to be afraid? It says in verse 5 and 6, coming to the understanding that there is only one king who reigns sovereignly over God's creation and that is God's beloved son. Look at verse 6. He says to the kings and the rulers of the world, As for me, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. When God arises to speak to them in fury and to terrify them in his wrath, what he says to them is, I have chosen my king and it's not you. You are subjected to him. And let me tell you about his rule over you. I've given him all authority in heaven and on earth. All he has to do is ask of me and I will give him the nations and he will rule over you with the rod of iron and he will dash you into pieces like earthenware vessels. These kings will be brought into submission to God's king. They will bow their knees to him willingly or they will bow their knees because they're being shattered by a rod of iron. Either way, they will submit to Jesus as king. Now, in light of that, notice what God says to these kings and these rulers then. This is what I really wanted to get to. I hope you're with me. Verse 10, in light of this truth that God has established his king in Zion, God has given his king all authority in heaven and on earth, and the kings and the rulers of the world are all subject to him. Look at what God says in verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. You know what he's saying there? I've established my king, guys, who will be your utter ruin if you continue in your obstinance. So show wisdom and come to my king. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling, verse 7. And notice this, verse 12, kiss the son. Now, in the NASB, it's translated as do homage to the son. Either way is fine. It's still dealing with the fact that these kings owe something to God's son, whom God has established on his throne on Zion. It says in verse 12, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Now let me ask you the question, when is this to be applied to the rulers and kings of the earth? Is it now? According to Hebrews 12, 22 and 23, it is now. Because right now Jesus reigns in Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. That means that God has already established Christ as king in heaven. And all the rulers of the earth are called to submit to God's commands that he gives them here in verses 10 and 12. Now, I want you to get this. and I know I'm dragging this out. We're going to be done soon-ish. <laughs> I want you to pay attention to this. This is really, really important. God is not speaking to believers here. Nor is God speaking to unbelieving peoples from the nations. 
God is saying these things to kings and rulers of the world. Which means, if we were considering Queen Elizabeth, God would declare over her, Jesus Christ is your king. Now submit to him. Or, if we were considering Kim Jong-un, North Korea, God declares to him, Jesus Christ is your king. Now submit. Or if we're thinking of Xi Jinping from China, God looks at him and declares, Jesus Christ is king. Now submit. Take refuge in him. Or we're thinking about Justin Trudeau, prime minister in Canada. The Lord looks at him and says, Jesus is king. You are not. Now bow the knee. Or if we're looking at Joe Biden, God looks at Joe Biden and declares, Jesus is king. Submit. Kamala Harris, Donald Trump, Tim Walls. Jesus Christ is king, and you are expected to bow to him. Now, what does that mean practically? That means that as their king, as the one who is king over all kings and lord over all lords, Jesus Christ demands their allegiance as those who rule under his jurisdiction. Now, what does that allegiance look like? That's really the question, right? This is the issue. What does it look like then to call the rulers and the kings of the world to manifest their allegiance to the king and to do his will? What does that mean? Well, you cannot get around the clear implication that God's word calls the rulers of this world to repent of sin, to own Christ as their savior, and to bow their knee to him as king, and then to rule in light of Christ's kingship. Can't escape that. That's what God calls for, and that is what ultimately will come to pass. Go read Revelation 19. But, once those kings are submitted, does that mean that they are to exercise authority to force everyone to be Christians? Are we talking about enforcing the gospel at the point of the sword? Isn't that what they tried to do in the Crusades? That didn't work, did it? I don't think there were too many genuine converts through the Crusades, do you? No, once they are submitted to Christ as king in their own hearts, then they are to rule according to God's intentions that he has made clear to them in his word. Specifically referring to Romans chapter 13, verses 3 and 4. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 14, look with me at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 14. They are to rule as those who were sent by God for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. God demands this from them because that is why he set them up in authority to begin with. Governments do not have the authority to tyrannize their subjects. Governments have the authority to praise the good and to punish the evil, and that is it. 
And this is what led to the Protestant and Reformation doctrine of, well, idea of resisting tyranny and honoring God. You honor God by resisting tyrants. God never gives mankind authority to tyrannize their subjects. He gives them authority to rule according to his righteous decree, which is here, praise the evil, uphold them, encourage them, give furtherance, excuse me, not the evil, praise the good, uphold them, encourage them, give furtherance to that which is good, and punish that which is evil. Now, how are they going to decide what's good and evil? By their own imagination? They're just going to think about what is good? They're going to think about what is evil, and then they're going to implement rules and laws accordingly? That's how our country is trying to act right now, and you see how conflicted everything is. It's so inconsistent. The whole cannot be held together. It's going to break apart. In fact, I would say it's already breaking apart. We're just experiencing the crumbling before our eyes right now. How are the kings and the rulers of the earth to determine what is good and what is evil? Well, they're to determine it by the law of God. Second table laws, to be clear. They have no authority to make people honor God or worship God the way that God has decreed, but they are given authority to make sure that people treat one another the way God intends. If you want to read more about this, you can read Samuel Rutherford's tremendous work called Lex Rex, entitled, uh, if you translate that, uh, some have translated it, The Law and the King. Others have translated it as Law is King, which would mean the converse is not true. King is not law. Law is king, and even the king is subject to law. Now, that's what allegiance from civil rulers and magistrates would look like. It looks like owning Christ as their own personal Savior and Lord and then exercising in government according to God's will made known in His Word. Praise that which is good. Punish that which is evil. But this also lays upon the church a number of responsibilities. And we're going to close with this. You can understand why we didn't go any further today. She hear an amen. I'm glad you didn't. The first responsibility I want to mention here, and there are two that I have listed, is that the church of Jesus Christ, in light of what we have seen about God's expectations as King of kings and Lord of lords, in light of that, the church of Jesus Christ is charged to pray for our leaders in government in light of these truths. We are to pray for them, first of all. Now, what are we to be praying for? Well, we are to pray to the end that they would be converted and that their rules and reigns would be established to the end that the church would dwell in peace and security and be able to fulfill its mission. Did I just make that up? No, I didn't. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2 says that we are to, as a church, we are to devote ourselves to prayer for kings and for all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life. 
Now, what exactly are we praying for there? Paul goes on to clarify it in verses 3 and 4. This is good and acceptable in the sight of our sa- God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, that means that the church's responsibility is to pray for the salvation of our leaders. Not just to pray that they would rule well, but that they would be saved and genuinely converted to Jesus Christ. Because as they are converted to Christ, they will rule well. We pray for their salvation so that they would establish rule and reign to the end that the church would dwell in peace and security and be enabled to further her mission. As Paul puts it here, that we would lead a tranquil and a quiet life in all godliness he says. So we pray that government will be established so as it would not hinder that great endeavor that God has called us to do. Now, secondly, second implication, second responsibility that is laid upon the church. In light of what we have seen, it is the church's responsibility to be a prophetic voice to our governors and our rulers and our kings. That command that we just looked at in Psalm 2, we are to be prophets relaying that command and all of its implications to our government leaders in our own day. In my opinion, this is where the church in our country has failed the most in relation to our society. Government, I should say. We have failed to uphold our responsibility to speak prophetically to those who are in office. Now, when I say prophetically, I don't mean getting visions and having dreams and declaring, thus saith the Lord to somebody that's not written in Scripture. What I'm talking about is taking the Word of God and proclaiming it with confidence and faith and in truth. God demands your allegiance. Now give it to Him. That's what I'm talking about. And when they crossed the line, as the elders here at this church are convinced they did last year, You have to stand your ground in order to maintain your truthful allegiance to Christ. Even if it costs you. You stand in the authority of God's word and you speak the truth to them. Not in hate and in anger, but you speak the truth to them in love nonetheless. We in this country have given in to cowardice and we have allowed ourselves to be shamed into silence. Now, I want you to hear what I just said. We have allowed ourselves to be shamed into silence. So many Christians have this two-tier understanding of life in this world as as it pertains to the Christian. That there's this world out there that is under the jurisdiction of of the ungodly and there's nothing that God has to say to them. There are no expectations that God has upon them. They're just sinners and they're acting like sinners and they're going to do that always. What can we do about it? But in the church, we hold to the truth. We keep God's law. We hold fast to the gospel. These two different spheres. Now I'm trying to work this out. This two kingdom theology. I need some help from Josiah. I don't know all of this yet. You guys are like, what in the world is he talking about? Don't worry about it. In Scripture, though, we are not allowed to make that kind of division about God's rule and God's expectations for His creatures. God has expectations for the ungodly just as much as God has expectations for me. 
And it's the church's job to speak to the world of the ungodly the truth that God has made known in His Scriptures. We're not doing that. And that's what I mean by being shamed into silence. Well, they're not going to listen anyway. Hello? Christian movement started with 120 people who were speaking to a crowd that crucified the Lord that they were proclaiming. If there was anyone who wasn't going to listen, it was going to be the Jews in the first century. And Jesus sent His apostles to them first. He said, you go tell them the truth, and I'll take care of the rest. That's our job. We are not... Jesus did not shed His blood for us to be a bunch of defeatist and retreatist. I heard that this week, and I thought, that's good. That's going in the sermon. <laughs> Jesus did not shed His blood in order to make us a bunch of defeatist and retreatist. He didn't shed His blood so that we would walk around with mindsets of Christianity already being defeated, and we're just going to hunker down and retreat back in our holes, and we're just going to ride it out to the end, baby. Jesus is coming soon. Don't worry about all those other people out there that need to hear about Jesus. Don't worry about trying to affect change in the world for the glory of Jesus. Don't worry about bringing the kingship of Jesus to bear upon the areas of your life where God has placed you. Let's just, let's just hide back in this hole and just pretend that everything's okay and the world is not crumbling around us. Guys, if we adopt that kind of mentality, it'll be 10 Maybe 10 years before these doors are closed and we're not even here anymore. 140 years of this church. This church has been in this area for 140 years and that didn't happen by people adopting a defeatist and a retreatist mentality. Matthew 16, Jesus shed his blood so that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. Guess what? You don't go on the offensive with gates. Gates are a defensive mechanism. They're there to keep people out. You know what that means that the church is doing? That means the church is making war on those gates. We are taking the fight to the enemy, not waiting for the enemy to come to us. And Jesus says, when you do that, you need to understand, by my blood and my power and my reign and my rule, those gates will not prevail. Now, what are the gates that we're facing in our society? What, what gates are you facing from an ungodly, hostile world that you need to go attack right now? What are we facing collectively as a church? We need to be thinking through those questions, and we need to be developing our battle plan. How are we going to attack those gates? The Lord has already promised us victory. We just have to go get it. Right? Isn't that the, mes the message of the Israelites going into the promised land? The Lord said, I have given you this land. Now get up and go take it. And on the same way, that's what we're called to do as a church. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You know what that means? Jesus is king. What are we supposed to do with that? Go. 
make disciples of all nations and teach them how to glorify me by obeying my will. That's our task. We're called to live lives that are pro-reggae for the king. I pray that the Lord will give us grace to do that. And as we close here in just a second, closing hymn, I pray that he will give us much joy as we sing a song declaring that we will rejoice. The Lord is king. Would you pray with me? Father, please bless our time as we sing this last and closing hymn for today. Lord, you are king, and we want to rejoice in you as king. So would you please help us do that? Give us grace and strength by your spirit to live lives that are for the king. In whatever area of influence and sphere in which you've placed us, Lord, let us assert the authority of Jesus with love and compassion, but with boldness and truth. Lord, bless us for the glory of your name and the spread of your kingdom, the advancement of your gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> the Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many islands be glad. Amen. And may you be glad and rejoice in the kingship of our Lord as you go forth this week in peace. Amen.